Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4-5, remains the centerpiece of Jewish prayer, proclaiming divine unity, even while summoning God's people to loyalty and loving obedience. In a recent book, Lori A. Barron argues that John's Gospel uses the Shema to portray Jesus' unity with God. Tune in as we speak with Lori Barron about her book, The Shema in John's Gospel. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Laurie A. Barron taught Greek language at Duke Divinity School and is Assistant Professor of New Testament at St. Louis University. Laurie, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Hey, thanks so much, Michael. It's great to be here. So, Laurie, tell us about yourself before we talk about your book. I am a Jewish New Testament scholar. Uh, I teach at St. Louis University, uh, and actually, I grew up in St. Louis. I uh, never thought I would end up moving back here, but um, they say people who grew up in St. Louis end up moving back. I wasn't going to be one of them, uh, and here I am. I, I feel really fortunate to be back here. Now, your book's title is The Shema in John's Gospel. Would you orient us to the Shema and its meaning in Deuteronomy? Great question. The Shema is... One of the most important parts of the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, to um, most Jewish people around the world. Uh, what we call the Shema, you know, is, is mostly limited to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through, let's say, through 9. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, uh, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's just 6, 4, and 5. Uh, And then it goes on to say that these commandments should be remembered at all times, when you wake up, when you lie down, when you're walking. Um, And that that passage has become, over the centuries, uh, the most important statement within Judaism. It's it's considered now to be um, a, a statement of monotheism. Jews only worship, only believe in uh, the one God. It also has become a formalized prayer, and that happened later. So uh, over the centuries, it developed the uh, other other passages of Scripture were added to the Shema, and then some rabbinic blessings were added to it. So it's recited in every Jewish prayer service uh, at least once. Tell us about the significance of the Shema in Second Temple Judaism. In what ways did it evolve in its meaning or function in the life of Jewish people? Yes, this was um, a surprise for me because when I decided I wanted to write on the Shema in the New Testament, and in particular in John's Gospel, I thought I better try to figure out what the Shema is doing outside of its, within its context in Deuteronomy where it first appears, but, but outside of that too. So First, I explored the Shema throughout the what, what Christians call the Old Testament, what Jews call the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. 
And it turns out other writers mention the Shema, uh, especially, I think the most famous one might be in the description in Second Kings of King Josiah. He turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. So anytime the covenant was renewed in Joshua, uh, other places in the Hebrew Bible, there were resonances of the Shema would come up because the Shema really represented the core of the covenant. I'm kind of going back to your first question in a way. The core of the the contract between God and the Jewish people was, I'm the only God, love me, serve me, and I will uh, bless you with with uh, life, with uh, rain, with crops. It was, you know, it was just kind of a an agreement, uh, a covenant. That's what a covenant is. Uh, and so whenever the covenant would, would come into question, or whenever it seemed like Israel disobeyed God, let's say, and got sent out into, into exile, the idea of returning to God would often be expressed in terms of uh, the Shema, whether it's loving God, returning to God with all the heart, soul, and strength. And then beyond the Hebrew Bible, writers like in the Second Temple period, Philo, Josephus, the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the authors of other works called pseudepigrapha, books, Jewish works that didn't make it into the Bible, Jubilees, the Letter of Aristeas, Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. These are unknown writings to many people. Uh, and they, almost every one of these writings at some point drew upon the language of the Shema. Sometimes, well, just sort of a couple of fun examples. Um, Philo and Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian in the first century. Philo was a Jewish Greek philosopher. When they are trying to explain the benefits of Judaism, whether it's to their fellow Jews or to their non-Jewish readers, uh, they used a mixture of Jewish language and Greek philosophy. And so when either one of these writers wants to either convince Jews or their readers that um, uh, that Judaism is an ancient and time-honored and venerable tradition and that it speaks to the highest Greek virtues of, of honor and, and virtue, uh, they will often draw upon the language of the Shema. So the Shema is kind of becomes kind of a bridge. Um, it's it's an expression that can be drawn upon and used to to show faithfulness to Jewish values and Jewish culture and Jewish beliefs while still sort of trying to fit in to whatever culture Jews then found themselves in uh, in subsequent years beyond the Hebrew Bible. So how is the Shema used in John's Gospel? Perhaps give us a concrete example or two. Okay, I would love to. Um, the tricky thing about this topic is that many people realize that Jesus quotes the Shema in what we call the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, it's also, it's a passage known as the Great Commandment. Some people, it's different people in, in depending on which gospel you're reading, they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he says, uh, basically, love God, love your neighbor. Uh, in Mark, he also includes, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But all three include Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then Jesus attaches the commandment of love of neighbor to that. Uh, he wasn't unique in the ancient world of doing that. Other Jewish sages would often try to come up with, how can we summarize Judaism, Jewish law, in 
you know, what we would say, like in a, in a Twitter bite, how could you do that on Twitter? Well, Jesus' version of Twitter is the great commandment. The tricky thing is John doesn't include the great commandment. So you might think John doesn't care about the Shema. So that made my task a little bit difficult. But I did uh, notice that there were a couple of places in John where the author of John uses the word one to describe either God and Jesus or Jesus. So, for example, John 10.30 is a, a really one of the most prominent examples. This is a scene where um, Jesus is in a conflict, as he often is, with some Jewish leaders. And they're talking. This is at the Feast of the Dedication in John 10. And there's an argument, and, and Jesus' punchline is, I and the Father are one. Well, that, you know, it's hard to say. What did he mean by that? Well, the people standing by clearly seem to know that he was saying something potentially blasphemous because John tells us people take up stones to stone Jesus to death. That might seem kind of like an extreme reaction. Uh, it was extreme, but it's also the requirement for uh, the punishment for blasphemy in the Hebrew Bible. So by saying the Father and I are one, I try to argue that John is including Jesus in the divine echad. Echad is the Hebrew word for one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is echad. Well, Jesus is saying the Father and I are both echad. That's a dangerous thing to say. That's not the whole thing, but that's that's one of the more obvious places. So what I had to do is I, I noticed in some of these other writings that anytime there was some kind of mention of something related to the Shema, whether it's God is one or loving God, there was a complex of themes that would gather. At least two or three of, of these themes would be there. There would be the idea of hearing. The word Shema means hear, uh, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. Uh, and so hearing is also corresponds to obedience. They, they mean kind of the same thing to hear. To hear God is to obey God. So in John, there are clusters of hearing. There are clusters of mentions of, of love for God. Uh, there are clusters of mentions of, um, of obedience to God's commandments. And whenever two or three of these things would cluster together, uh, I would see some resonance with at least the Deuteronomic covenant, if not the Shema itself. Um, so, for example, you know, when you see Jews, some Jews in, in John chapter five talk about um, uh, arguing against the idea that Jesus is somebody special. And he says to them, you do not have the love of God in you um, that along with some other features, to me, spoke of the, the uh, presence of the Shema. They are, uh, they're accusing Jesus of not being one with God, and he's accusing them of not being obedient to God uh, by not loving God. So um, that's, that's just one place um, early on in John. Tell us also about John 17, the farewell discourse. What I loved about that is I started to notice that in the farewell discourse, that's the part of John, usually John 14 to 17. So he's no longer arguing with uh, some of his Jewish opponents. Now he is speaking to his own disciples. Uh, Jesus speaks very much like the God of Deuteronomy, and specifically in terms of the Shema. If you love me, keep my commandments is almost straight out of Deuteronomy. 
Uh, the Shema is about recognizing that God is one, and it's about loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And what comes right after that in Deuteronomy is a bunch of commandments. And that's what the, or the arrangement, the covenant with between God and Israel was supposed to be. So Jesus says things like, you haven't chosen me, but I have chosen you. Well, right near where the Shema is quoted in, Jude, in Deuteronomy, God says, I am choosing you. So God chooses a people, Israel. In John 14 and 15, Jesus chooses a people. That's almost like a retelling of the story. There's a, a, the command to love, you know, uh, love, love, love God in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, uh, love Jesus in John 14. Uh, and then if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, that's, that's it, Jesus is playing the role of the God of the Old Testament. And this is remarkable. And it's a lot to say about yourself uh, unless, as I, I think John and the people who read and listened to John understood, they did believe that Jesus was within the divine unity and that it wasn't blasphemy uh, to say that he was. Now, just one comment here, that they're not the same person because even within John, I believe it's John 14, 28, Jesus says, the father is greater than I. So the father is not the son. They're two different beings, but they both seem to coexist within the divine unity. And I feel like John actually does more with this idea than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, who actually quote it. Lori, would you explain the function or purpose of the gospel's use of the Shema? By using the Shema, you know, I think that John is actually doing something, uh, what we would call apologetic or polemical. Um, my, one of my historical beliefs about John, and this is kind of controversial, is that John's readers were people who had been excluded from synagogue communities. And so what John does effectively with the Shema is to say, you may have excluded us, but we believe now that those of you who don't follow Jesus are now the ones who are excluded from the covenant of Israel because you're not loving God and you're not keeping his commandments. As Jesus says in John, uh, if you believed Moses, you would believe in me, but you don't. So you're defending yourselves by saying that you uh, follow Moses and are maybe per perhaps the true Jews. But if you really believed what Moses said, you would believe in Jesus. Um, he is one with God. And this is, you know, this is this is why I think we see so many difficult statements and so much anger. We see a lot of anger in John's gospel. And I think that's because historically there was something that happened. It's very hard to say precisely, but there's some anger there um, uh, between Jews who believe in Jesus and Jews who do not. This is not anger between Christians and Jews. That would be anachronistic um, to say that there's a Jewish-Christian uh, split in John's gospel. But there does seem to be a split between Jews who follow Jesus and Jews who do not. Now, this raises a huge problem, though, right? Because when John was written, or perhaps uh, not long before John was written, Jews were the minority, or the majority of followers of Jesus. What would happen centuries later, not even that long, when uh, non-Jews became the majority and they started seeing this language and instead of having it be a intra-Jewish critique, now you start to have 
non-Jewish Christians use this hostile language against local Jewish communities. And this is the sad legacy of John's gospel and of other parts of the New Testament is that um, a lot of these harsh statements have been taken out of context and are used against Jews um, to this day. Uh, I talked to my New Testament classes just a couple of months ago. Uh, there were some people in Los Angeles with a banner that they held over a freeway sign that said um, something like Kanye was right about the Jews. And then it said John 844. Well, I asked my students, do you know uh, what John 844 says? Okay, well, here's what it says. You are of your children. You are of your father, the devil. And, you know, that's obviously horrible. And it's not the first time and it probably won't be the last time that parts of John's gospel and other New Testament texts. Uh, Revelation also was a big one. You, uh, you are of the synagogue of Satan. These are intra-family intra uh, arguments, something that you might say to a brother or sister in a moment of anger, but uh, when they start being used by a majority, by the powerful majority against uh, a persecuted minority, terrible things can happen and have happened. This is tragically sad. Moses said some negative things about Israel in Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Many of the other prophets did as well, but that is easily taken within the Jewish context because it's in the Hebrew Bible, whereas the New Testament, although it's written in Greek, is also a Jewish context, as you are saying, uh, but sadly has been so misapplied and really is tragic. Now, it seems to me your work, Lori, is demonstrating that even though John's gospel doesn't quote the Shema, uh, at a surface level, like some of the other Gospels and, and even outside of the canon works do, when you understand the theology of the Shema and Deuteronomy, you see that at an even deeper level and more robustly, John's Gospel relies on the Shema and uses the Shema to make a profound theological statement. I definitely think you're right about that. I think that, you know, one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that when the Shema gets used, even within the Hebrew Bible, it gets changed and news, used in new ways. Uh, and that brings up a point I don't have time to go into, which is the flexibility and the adaptability of biblical traditions. Um, it's just sort of one of my pet peeves. A lot of people think the Bible is this stagnant, uh, sort of static entity. But uh, even within the Bible, you see change and development. So my actual point was, uh, some of the Hebrew prophets, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when they used the Shema, um, they also added a component to it, which had to do with, um, you know, there's one shepherd and one flock in Ezekiel 34, just as there is in John 10. There's a corresponding unity of the people of Israel with the one God, and that we don't see in Deuteronomy, but it is in the Hebrew Bible, so it, it developed I think John is using, he's drawing from that developed tradition as it went on. There was this idea of restoration. So even in the first century when Jews were living in the, in the land, there was this sense that things still weren't right. You know, the Romans were in charge um, and they were being, they were abusive. Their laws and taxation were abusive. And there was um, always throughout Jewish history, 
at various, sometimes more than others, there was this longing for a time when Israel would be fully restored in the land um, and uh, with full autonomy, perhaps even with the idea that God is king. And I think that's what, uh, what John is doing. He is saying, basically, Jesus is the shepherd king promised in the Old Testament prophets with resonances of the Shema, one king, one, uh, one shepherd, one flock. So Jesus has restored Israel in some uh, unique, perhaps even mystical way through this, this idea that in the restored time, uh, there would be one God and correspondingly one people. And to me, that's one of the more uh, exciting things that I discovered as I was working on this. What else are you working on these days? Any new projects? Sure, thanks for asking. I was asked to contribute to a Oxford handbook. It's going to be a couple of years probably uh, before that comes out. Uh, it's a handbook on Jewish Christianity. So various scholars will uh, write different parts of it. I'll be writing about uh, positive views of Jesus that Jews have had uh, probably over the last hundred years or so. There was a resurgence uh, about mid-20th century, where you had Jewish scholars uh, looking at Jesus in a new way, and, it, and in a sense with an academically open mind, to try to see how does he fit in to Jewish history? How does his teaching compare to Jewish teachings? Not in a apologetic or a polemical way, but more in a, in a, in a way, in, a, in an academic sort of neutral uh, form of interest. Let's find out. Let's really get to know who Jesus was. Uh, apart from the years of persecution, uh, let's look at him for, with our own eyes. So I'll be writing a section on that. And I hope to keep writing more about John's relationship to Judaism. Lori, it's been good hearing about your work. Thank you for being with us and all the best. Thanks so much, Michael. I've enjoyed it. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.